Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this month we present two readings of plays based on the theme Resilience. The first is by Nedra Pizold Roberts. She is an Atlanta playwright who's had her work performed from coast to coast. Several of her plays have won competitions, including the 2013 Southern Playwrights Competition and both the 2013 and 2015 American Association of Community Theaters New Play Fest. She won an Ellie for Best Script in the 2014 Sacramento Area Regional Theater Alliance. She is a member of the Dramatist Guild, yay, good on you, also working title playwrights, and a board member of the Atlanta Writers Club. For additional information, check out her website, www.nedrapizoldroberts.com. The play that we are reading today is called Catatonic, and the cast is as follows. Mike Davey is Harry, former partner of Tom. Brad Rich will be playing Rick, Tom's current partner, and now caught in a tug-of-war between Harry and Tom over Sophie Tucker, Tom and Rick's cat. The cat is now, after a biological exam, simply called Tucker. And Milo Bohack will be playing Tom. The play opens up in Tom and Rick's apartment. Rick speaks to us. We've got this situation. Tom, Rick, and Harry. I'm Rick, so I'm in the middle, being used as a scratching post. The kind cats sharpen their claws on? Well, not a literal post, but you know what I mean. It's true that when I hooked up with Tom, I realized he had some baggage from his previous relationship. I was ready to accept that, you know? Help him work through it? But in no way was I prepared for Harry. I mean, who could be? Don't move. Wait right there and see for yourselves. Are you sure he's not here? I told you it was safe when you called, didn't I? Yes, but Tom can hold a grudge. It's not a grudge. It's a restraining order. And he's not here, so you can give me Tucker and go. His name is Sophie, not Tucker. Harry, just give me the cat. If you call him by the wrong name, you'll warp his psyche. The cat, Harry. In a minute. I got something to say first. Give me the damn cat. I got something to say. (coughs) Quiet, Tucker. Your jailer will be gone in a minute, and I'll let you out of your prison. Don't call it a prison. He'll hear you. You're nuts. You know that? (coughs) See? You've upset him. Sophie is very sensitive. You're confusing his identity when you call him by the wrong name. By what stretch of the imagination is Tucker the wrong name? Tom and I named him Sophie Tucker when he was a kitten. He knows that name, responds to it. It's who he is. It's who he was, until the vet pointed out that Sophie was a boy. Then Tom declared the cat was now Tucker, not Sophie, just plain Tucker. Tucker sends the wrong signal is homophobic. Listen carefully, you lunatic. You're gay. I'm gay. Tom is gay. Tucker is not. He's a cat. How do you know he's not gay? Jesus. Thank you for returning Tucker. I'll bring him to your place at the regular time next week. I have a few concerns you should share with Tom. This isn't recess in junior high, Harry. And I'm not passing your notes to Tom. Then I'll have my lawyer contact his lawyer and Tom won't be happy if we go back to court. Over a cat? Sophie isn't just a cat. He's a family member, a product of my union with Tom. Harry, I'm being patient here. 
Sophie won't eat his gourmet cat food, and he refuses his organic treats. I think Tom's frequent absences are affecting Sophie's appetite. He misses Tom. Tom's an airline pilot with an irregular schedule. You know that. If the cat lived here full-time, he wouldn't have to adjust to a different house every other week. You're the one who sued for joint custody. And Tom's the one who took out a restraining order. He doesn't want me to see Sophie. Tom doesn't care if you see Tucker. Tom just doesn't want to see you. Tom came home that night, and against my better judgment, I shared Harry's list of gripes. Tom was not happy. And the beat goes on. He looks fine to me. He ate his food and chased the laser light like he was still a kitten, full of energy. How he's imagining things. He seemed genuinely concerned. Yes, seemed. What he's really after is sole custody of Tucker. No way am I going to allow that. Oh, I don't think... He figures if he complains enough, I'll give in and let him keep Tucker. That's the kind of passive-aggressive stunt he used to pull when we were together. Complain, wait, complain, wait, hoping to wear me down. Tucker is fine with the present arrangements. End of discussion. He pees in the bedroom closet when you're gone. Harry? Tucker! Since when? Since you and Harry started this joint custody mess. I never noticed a problem with the closet. That's because I clean it up right away. But I have to keep checking, because he likes to do it all over again after I've cleaned up. And he freaks when I put him in the cat carrier to do the handoff to Harry. He runs away or, or, or tries to climb up the curtains... He's like the devil on speed. Oh, he's just playing with you, Rick. This is my life. I'm the rope in a tug of war between Tom and Harry. Meanwhile, that cat is laughing his furry ass off at me. This can't go on. I never signed up for divorce counseling. I realize I complain a lot. Really? What was your first clue? It's my job to look out for Sophie's best interests if Tom is going to callously ignore them. Tom loves Tucker. He takes good care of him. He's not feeding Sophie his organic treats we agreed on. Sophie has a very delicate stomach. <laughs> delicate stomach. That cat eats olives, strings, and pizza crust. He even eats paper. I know it. This proves Tom is unfit to raise Sophie. Tell him he'll be hearing from my lawyer. He's riding the crazy train again. This is beyond vindictive. It's, it's, it's... What's that? <clears throat> A letter from Harry's lawyer. Wow. I knew he threatened to have his lawyer contact you, but I thought he was just blowing smoke. I mean, are cat treats really such a big deal? Treats? Is this about those damn organic pellets? The man's insane. Tucker hates those pellets. And I refuse to spend $20 a bag for grass clippings held together with glue. Is that what they are? It might as well be. They're hard as rocks and they smell like dead fish. Maybe if you talked to Harry, the two of you could reach some kind of compromise. Yeah, and whose side are you on anyway? Tucker's. I think. So I finally got sick of this insanity and told Harry to get his butt over here for a summit meeting. No lawyers, just us. Tom pitched a fit. But I was unilaterally voiding the restraining order. Gentlemen, we're here to find a mutually agreeable solution to our problem, and we're going to resolve it quickly. Because right now, Tucker is probably peeing in our closet. For the record, I am here against my will. Same here. Tough. We're settling this now. Harry, I mean this seriously. What do you really want? I want 
Time to agree to let me take Sophie to see a therapist. A therapist? Yes. I think he's been traumatized by a breakup. There's nothing wrong with Tucker. He's fine. If anyone needs to see a therapist, it's Harry. Every time Sophie comes to my apartment, he hides. For at least two days. He won't come out from under the bed. Not even to eat. I have to push his food under the dust ruffle. He's fine here. You give him that organic crap and he hates it. But get a clue. Give him cat food. The stuff you give Sophie is terrible for his digestion. It, it gives him gas. It doesn't. A actually, it does. I've never noticed that. Because I put deodorizers in every room. That cat's farts are almost as lethal as tear gas. You don't really care about his digestion. You're a terrible parent. And you're... Guys! This sniping isn't getting us anywhere. Focus, Harry. What do you actually want? I want him to admit that he's a terrible parent and he doesn't love Sophie as much as I do. Not gonna happen. Your turn, Tom. What do you want? I want Harry to admit I'm better with Tucker than he is. And that's the real reason our relationship imploded. You never put in the effort and you were never home. Ah, truth at last. Okay, enough about the two of you. Here's what's going to happen. From now on, that cat is mine, not yours. And neither of you has any say in how he and I partner up. You can't do that. I, I have rights. The cat has rights, too. And they don't include being used as the ball in a ping-pong tournament. Tom, forget the restraining order. And Harry, you can visit the cat whenever you want. He hates that damn cat carrier and getting shuffled back and forth every week. You just can't claim Sophie. Pay attention. I just did. The cat and I get along. I ignore him, and he ignores me. Uh, uh, actually, that's true. Tucker's calm around Rick. More like he allows Rick to inhabit his space. We'll need to write up a whole new agreement. But you'll have to call Sophie by his name and stop referring to him as the cat. You can write up any agreement you want, but the cat and I are going to ignore it. And as of now, his name is no longer Sophie Tucker. It's Cat. That's what he is, so that's the name. He won't respond to that. He'll just confuse him. Tom's right. <laughs> it figures. The one thing you agree on is your hypocrisy. You each call him by a different name, and you think that doesn't confuse him? If all three of us call him Cat, he'll adapt quickly. Uh, actually, you might be right about that. Yeah... It's a point. So, it's Cat from now on? I can accept that if you do, Harry. Oh, alright. Okay, done. Time to go check where Cat's been pissing. That was the play Catatonic by Nedra Pizold Roberts. We caught up with Nedra down in Atlanta and had a great little chat while you're here. We started off by uh, talking about what a great cat lover she must be to write a play like this. Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm, I'm a dog person. <laughs> okay. Well, well, let's. Uh, but, where did this um, Where did this come from then? I have friends, and one pair of friends particularly uh, have the cat uh, Sophie Tucker, and they are the ones who found out that. It has to be Tucker from now on. So, um, 
laughing with them about it. Uh, I just started to think about what ifs, and the story came to me. And um, such good friends, they said, well, go ahead and take our cat. You can have it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did. <laughs> they have to be good friends, but they are still together, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yes. So this this is this is a semi made up sort of thing. Okay. Um, yeah. What did they think of the play? Oh, they love it. They love it, and they're stunned that Tucker has been uh, going around the country visiting theaters um, in all the different productions that uh, the little play has had. Nice. Uh, it, it it's on its fifth production now. Congratulations. Where? Well, thank you. Um, well, it's been at Atlantic Stage in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and then the Gulfport Community Players in Tampa, um, and then the Lonnie Chapman Theater in North Hollywood uh, for their one-act play festival, and then um, it'll be coming up soon, uh, Open Hydrant, uh, the Bronx, and it was the Pittsburgh Newark Festival accepted it. Um, but by the time they let me know about it, um, the play had already had a production, so they said, sorry, we can't use it after all. So, um, you know, I know. It's, <laughs> I, I, have, I still do not understand how a theater in, let's say, Connecticut will turn down a play that's had a production in Nebraska. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's, it, <laughs> welcome to the club. <laughs> I I get it. It's world premiere. Is yeah. it's uh, that literally means that a play technically, literally and technically, uh, has a shelf life of one performance. Uh, right. <laughs> which makes no uh, sense to me because Hamlet would have never gone anywhere if somebody was insisting that it was a world premiere. <laughs> but uh, well, not. Not all theaters are that strict, but um, this one particular opportunity, yeah, I had to relinquish. Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody it, right it now, was... they're missing out. <laughs> I hope audiences are having fun with this play, um, because I sure did have fun writing it. Um, but you know, um, there's a... a statement attributed to Lillian Hellman, and I love it. Uh, it says, uh, when the lights come up on the stage, they come up on trouble. Otherwise, you don't have a play. That's true. And so, you know, I like my, I like my characters to move into conflict. So this particular little play, I started right away. Um, when Rick comes out, uh, he's moving into the conflict, <laughs> whether he likes it or not. Mm-hmm. And from then on, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have some fun. Well, that's that's the tricky thing, you know, is, is getting the conflict going almost immediately. You know, it's it's that's what plays are about. There are plays about days that go really, really badly. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's a, a friend of mine and I came up with uh, what we call what we call the Passover moment, and there's usually a line in the Passover celebration that says, "Why is this day different than any other day?" And that's what I try and tell, uh, those, yeah, yeah. tell my playwriting yeah. students is you don't want to write about, you know, the great time you had at the amusement park. You want to write about the time that the Ferris wheel stopped for <laughs> two hours, you know. Um, oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I really am, uh, overall, I'm, I'm interested in the whole predicament of being human, you know, uh, what all that conflict 
uh, is, um, it, it, well, it can come from anything, and it can come at any time, but um, it's really the necessity of choice that we have to make, and then the consequences that follow that. I, I'm, I'm really interested in what happens to people when they move into conflict and have to make a choice and then live with what happens. Um, and it can be tragic. It can be hilarious. And so um, well, that's I what, let that's my what... three men uh, deal with it. <laughs> yes. Well, well, don't forget the cat. The cat is an innocent bystander <laughs> in this one. And probably yeah. smarter than all of them yeah. put together. Poor yeah, poor Tucker. <laughs> but no, honestly, it's, that's, that's what good theater is. It's, uh, you know, characters up on stage who've made bad decisions and now have to deal with it. It's, uh, yeah. 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 You know, you, you, you always look at, um, in any conflict, what do the people want? What did the, what do they want? And, and then what mm-hmm. stands in their way? Exactly. And in this particular play, I had fun with everything that stands in their way, stubbornness, pig headedness, mm-hmm. and, and just, you know, all around uh, being human. Yeah, just so. just basically being human. Yeah, yeah. We're so yeah. much fun. And, and that's what <laughs> that's where the comedy comes from. <laughs> Absolutely. So, what got you started playwriting, and how long have you been doing this? Well, I've been doing it about five and a half years. Um, I taught forever before I retired, and then um, what were you teaching? Took up playwriting, but obviously. You might guess I taught English. <laughs> so I've been reading plays all my life <laughs> and love them. So I retired and said, you know what, I'm going to start doing this myself. And I've been having some fun and some success. So um, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it until I can't do it anymore. Well, good luck with that. You've been, you've been having some, some very good success looking at your, uh, your website, which for the sake of our listeners is nedrapizoldroberts.com. So if folks want to read more about you, they can go there. But yeah, I was looking at it. You've got quite a uh, nice little uh, uh, listing of credits going for you. So what, 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 yeah, was your first, what was your first play and why did you write about that? Well, I will tell you, I, I'm from New Orleans, um, and my mother's people are in the Cajun country in southwest Louisiana. So my first play is The Vanishing Point. And in that play, I was dealing with um, really the loss of culture um, as everything is modernized. Uh, you know, the interstates come right through Cajun country, whereas before that area was partially isolated. Um, and then I looked at uh, the problem with the disappearing wetlands, and I thought, that's a good metaphor. I'll weave those two together. And that play won the um, American Association of Community Theaters um, New Play Fest and got a production in Sacramento. Nice. Well and, done. Um, at yeah, at Cal Stage Theater, and um, the play was nominated for eight Ellie Awards and won seven of them, wow. uh, including Best Script. And, you know, that was my very first production, and I didn't know what to do with myself because I couldn't <laughs> believe it all had happened. Was, Half my audience now hates you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, uh, during the production, the first when I saw it opening night, I, I don't think I breathed the whole whatever, how long it, it lasted. Um, 
but it was just um, beyond any dream I had and even more wonderful for the, the great actors and the director who, who took hold of my play. Um, and, and they took care of me and they took care of my character. So you can't ask for better than that. No, you cannot. That is absolutely wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah, I was Thank looking. Oh, yeah, you. I was looking through uh, again. I was looking through your credits, and uh, another one of your plays, "Wrong Number," seems to be uh, <laughs> getting. Uh oh, did I hit a did, did I hit a sore spot there? Or no, I, it's, no, I'm just surprised. I should not be surprised because of the age group I'm dealing with in the play, but um, you know, I, I'm really surprised that it's gotten such an enthusiastic. Um, response from theaters and from audiences who have seen it. And I mean audiences um, in all age groups. Uh, one woman was 85 years old uh, at the production the gallery players put on. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess I just hit the right note. Um, well, for those of us who haven't seen it, yeah, tell us a little bit about it, about the, about the play. Well, um, <laughs> the play deals with um, young men and women who are career oriented and uh, in their late 30s they begin to wonder uh, about starting families and so on and I have a young woman who's 37 and her best friend is a gay man who wants with his partner to start a family so she agrees to be the surrogate now that can be uh, a tragic circumstance or a humorous circumstance and I try to again be true to the human predicament and let some humor uh, temper those very serious moments but I do want to provoke the audience so I have a series of things that happen um, the couple breaks up the baby turns out to be twins and so on uh, wow. lots of complications and, and let humor ride out uh, the surprises. Um, because, I, you know, I want the audience, when all is said and done and they leave the theater, I want them to be talking. I want them to wonder about those people in a way that they might not have thought about uh, those people before. I want them to wonder about their predicament and what it means to be a family in 2016 as opposed to when I grew up um, in the 50s, you know. I think it's for everybody. I'm, I'm basically asking the audience to come on a journey with me and be willing to challenge some very comfortable assumptions and, and rethink some, um, some situations uh, to, to let them understand humanly what besets a lot of us when we enter one phase of our life and don't think about the future, and then all of a sudden the future is upon us. Right. And now what do we do? Um, we want to be happy. We all want to be successful. And we want um, complete lives. Uh, but that changes from decade to decade as we grow. And so I'm asking an audience to consider what it means to be someone who suddenly wakes up and realizes, oh my goodness, where am I? 
I've been traveling this road, now where am I? And the world and has changed on them. What are the choices? Yeah, and what are the choices I've made? What are the consequences that have followed? And what are the choices still left open to me? And some, sometimes those choices are to be loving people, to be generous, to be kind to one another, to be magnanimous, to offer to be family to those who don't have a large family, you know? Sure. Um, sure. It's, it's, so it's, it's a sentiment I wish more people would express towards yeah. each other. There's easily, especially these days with all the things going on, there's, there's too much hate flying yeah. around and too much oh. ignorance and misunderstanding. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, well, well, I have two parents in the, in the play. They're the girls' parents. And they are wrestling with this. They're trying to make sense out of it. And some of the humor comes from their um, ignorance and their attempt to um, educate themselves. And, and um, it's all overlaid with an innate kindness that they have. And some of it they didn't realize, that the depths of that kindness, that sure. they, they, that's part of who they are. So they're discovering things about themselves as as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you said before and, and about not... remaining true to the human condition, yeah. okay, can you talk about that for a little bit? Because one of the things that I find uh, that I look for in plays, uh, not just my own, uh, most critically my own, because uh, I'm my harshest critic, but in other plays that I see is an essential logical truth about the way people react and whether or not what happens on stage seems inevitable and genuine and how I feel when it doesn't seem that way. And it seems kind of like that's what you're talking about a bit. Yeah. Well, you know, um, Robert McKee, whose book story, I would say is a, a Bible for writers. If you haven't read it, get it and read it. Um, he says that, uh, he starts by saying, we live in story. And you know, that's true. I mean, I've just been telling you stories about how I write and what I think, but we live in story, and that's how we make meaning. And the human condition, um, whether the story is coming from Sophocles or Shakespeare or me, uh, um, the story is not just about what we know, it's also about what makes us curious. And we want meaning, and life all around us is chaos. And so we grapple with how to wrest meaning out of that chaos. And story is a vehicle. And it can be what happened to me when I went to the grocery store, or it can be the trauma that I endured, blah, blah, you know, whenever. Sure. Um, or it can it can be in the play, those characters I put on stage. But story is that attempt to communicate with each other about what really matters, who we are, um, how do we get to be the people we are, what is important in life, um, what do we fear, and how do we grapple with that fear, how do we overcome it, what stands in the way, all of that is involved in story, and that's the human condition. You know, I, I will tell you something else. Um, for me, theater is made 
in community. So that, that particular version of story, mm-hmm. it's made in community. Uh, I can be sitting at home in front of my computer writing, and I'm solitary. But, yes. oh, and I, I say this is kind of like the second Genesis story, you know, when God takes the clay and then he breathes on it and then it comes to life. Well, I take that clay uh, that I've been writing and I bring it to a director and some actors, and they're the ones who breathe on it. Yes, they are. And they bring my characters to life. And so the characters begin to walk around and speak, and then we together bring that work, that portion of the work, to an audience. And the audience is the final component in the conversation because their response um, and maybe in an audience talk back the questions they have, but certainly when they leave the theater and talk to other people about what they saw and what disturbed them, what delighted them, what, in, what illuminated whatever for them, that's the conversation. It's not just me sitting listening to my characters talk to me in my head or in rehearsal talking with a director and, and actors it's what happens when the audience becomes intimate with the story that Absolutely. is being enacted on stage. Absolutely. What's, what's, um, what's, what's the most if... challenging, interesting comment you've gotten after a performance from an audience member? Oh, my goodness. You know, um, things you never expect. Audience members who see themselves in the characters or... Um, I, I had a play, um, this uh, is called Wash, Dry, Fold, and it also won the American Association of Community Theaters um, New Play Fest. But first I took it to um, Dayton, Ohio, the Playhouse, the Future Fest there. Right. And I had one particular character whose um, the audience loved. They absolutely went wild for him. as an older gentleman, uh, a POW from Vietnam, but I had to kill him off because the end of the play, I needed the two women to reconcile. I needed to have that forgiveness. And he was a distraction. So, I mean, and I'm talking as a playwright dealing with structure now. Absolutely, not from yeah. my heart. That I, I love this man, but I had to kill him off. Oh, well, I hate when that happens. Went, yes. <laughs> the audience just, they hated it. They, they really were angry with me. Yeah. And then... I went out into the foyer, you know, after the the whole thing was over, and an older stagehand came to see me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he was a Vietnam vet, and he said to me, don't listen to them. You did the right thing. You freed that man from his prison. And who who could ever imagine that a character you put on stage is going to touch someone in a place so deep that it would make him tear up. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there are those moments you just cannot predict when you're writing. You must have drawn them beautifully. You know, for, for I, I hope members. so, because yeah. um, he's, he's modeled on a dear uncle of mine who was not a Vietnam vet, obviously, but he was dead. And so trapped in his own kind of prison, you know. Um, So if I did a good job of letting people understand what what that man was going through, Mm -hmm. um, 
that made me happy. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm considering the lack of talk that we have as a society about what our our soldiers have gone through, because we never hear, yeah. right, except in odd, rare circumstances, um, what really happens over in you know, either Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever else we, we, we send our young people to go fight, um, or about the horrors that they live through and the things they, you know, they can't unsee and the things that they may have done. There is very little conversation about that. So when somebody like you comes along and portrays somebody who bears those scars, that opens up the conversation, and, and we need more of that, I think. We, we need to take more responsibility yeah. for what we do as a nation and what we do to our citizens, you know, our brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, and anybody we send far away to, you know, do their, do their duty for us. Um, so, yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, you had that con- you know, conversation after the show. Yeah. And, you know, um, I am from that Vietnam generation, um, so that particular conflict resonates powerfully with me. Mm-hmm. I've lost family members. I've lost dear friends um, in that war. But what you're saying about taking responsibility, a playwright, <clears throat> I think, um, well, you know, in, in David Mamet's play, Oleana, um, the, the Professor John says to the student when she's arguing with him, he says, my job is to provoke you. And I taught for so many years. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I think that is the teacher's job. That's the playwright's job to provoke you. But to provoke you into thinking. Yes. You know, and and so the kinds of questions that you've been raising uh, about paying attention to our soldiers, and we, we make choices. To go to war, we make choices how to treat the Vietnam veterans or any other veteran who comes back. We make choices when we vote. We make choices about the money that is provided for the VA hospitals and so on. Um, and taking the consequences of those choices sometimes is a revelation to people, you know, because when they vote, they don't necessarily connect it to the consequence of the person they voted for, what that person is going to do uh, in making law, you know? So for us to bring that in a story on stage with characters who resonate with an audience, because there's that intimacy Mm -hmm. between the audience and what they see and hear on stage, you know? There ought to be, yeah. Um, yeah, That's the magic and the power of theater, I believe. I firmly believe that theater should change you in some way. It should raise a question in your mind. It should challenge you to think about something. It should forward your emotional, intellectual growth somehow. And it's, it's, that always causes some kind of, of I'm not going to say pain, but it's going to cause some kind of you know distress on some level because... Now you're changing something about yourself, and that's, yes, that's, you know, that's rarely easy. When Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible, he did it in four acts, and 
the convention at the time, five acts, you know, yeah, right. but um, he did it in four acts and everybody went crazy. Why, you know, four acts, he didn't finish the play, but <laughs> what he did was genius. Absolutely. Because he, he gets the audience so involved in John Proctor's death and the way he dies and the reason he has to die that they leave the, the audience leaves the theater talking agitated, um, involved, and they, in furthering that conversation, they write the fifth act themselves. Right. Because what Miller is trying to do is move them into action. And, you know, a playwright, if you can do that, oh my goodness. If you can do that, you, you are, are good. Yes, you are. <laughs> well, Nedra Pazold Roberts, it has been wonderful speaking with you. Um, and, well, thank uh, you. Thank you again for inviting. Anytime. Absolutely anytime. Your, your play is, okay. is lovely, and we had so much fun with it. And I know our audience will oh, also. Good, good. So. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you like what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of some interest, or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet, or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some really good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. I'm George Sapio. Thanks once again, and remember kids, go find yourself a really good friend and have yourselves some amazing theater. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>